I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom, not the shining one, Bionic. Well, I, in the context I know you mean it, that's good. Uh, mm-hmm. But we're going to be talking about the shining one and a whole bunch of other nuances mm-hmm. in a classic Future Quake discussion tonight. We have our special guest, as we always have starting out each month, um, but a special, very special guest this week. We have David Lowe, who is the mm-hmm. author of the new book that's come out called Deconstructing Lucifer, Reexamining the Ancient Origins of the Fallen Angel of Light. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about the myth of Lucifer and the true biblical nature of Satan, Satan on our show tonight. Mm-hmm. And I think our Futurians are going to really enjoy it. And uh, looking forward to what he and you have to say, Tom, uh, on this topic. So I'm not a scholar on this thing. You keep looking at me like I'm a genius. I just... Well, I always look at you that way, usually with fawning adoration, Tom. Well, the only man who wears a... Just like Pyro. Crash him up to a chess match, because he's <laughs> that, that intellectually uncoordinated... Well, uh, we're going to go right into our discussion with uh, our good friend David Lowe, and then we'll be right back to wrap up the discussion here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom the Nakash, or Halal Ben Shakar, or Howling, or Diablos. How about Spoil Sport for the show? Bionic. I was trying to think yeah. of some of the other Akkadian and Ugarit names for 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 the the evil yeah. one. How about an Indian name? Steal the <laughs> Steal the Guest Thunder Bionic. <laughs> it's, it's great to be with you all, ladies and gentlemen, for another Future Quake show. We've got an old friend of ours uh, who we just love has come back. Always writes compelling material, and uh, the kind of stuff Futurians like to chew on. And this week is absolutely no ex- exception. We have with us David Lowe. Uh, who was the author uh, of a new book uh, out called Deconstructing Lucifer, Reexamining the Ancient Origins of the Fallen Angel of Light. And our theme this week is the myth of Lucifer and the true biblical nature of Satan. And so, David, I just want to welcome you back for yet another visit to the Future Quake Show. Dr. Future, Tom, it is great to be back on your show. And I'm looking forward to getting into some deep stuff tonight. Uh, Thank the Lord that he's going to be here and the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow us and we're going to uh, have a, a spirit of discernment over us and, and be able to talk about these difficult issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully he'll help us out as well as our Futurians in the middle of all of our shortcomings and know that we're all trying to understand more about God and his His kingdom and his nature. Uh, you know, I think it's been I think it's been about three and a half years since you've been on our show. Uh, because you came on on like the first or second show when we just went on WNO, uh, Christian uh, Network, and we wanted to impress those people, so we had you on as a guest uh, <laughs> right off the bat. And I believe you would come and talk about your two other books, uh, even during our Radio Free Nashville days. Those books were, uh, one was called Earthquake Resurrection, and the other one was Then His Voice Shook the Earth. Uh, and both of those books really had a profound impact on my view of Bible prophecy, and they still influence me a lot, and, and as well as other parts of the Bible. 
And uh, I know this is really echoed by a lot of others in our listening audience who've uh, read your books as well. And uh, I was really thrilled to hear that you had written another book finally uh, <laughs> because I knew that it would be a very serious, thought-provoking effort uh, and something for me to stew over. And uh, it definitely was. And so to begin our discussion today, can you give us just a really, for our new listeners that we've picked up since then, could you give us a real quick capsule summary of your background? Sure. I, uh, I've been a believer my whole life. I grew up in the Assembly of God Church, and um, currently I teach with my wife, uh, third and fourth and fifth graders in Sunday school. Um, I work uh, as a CPA, a tax accountant right now. Um, so I'm just a just a regular guy. I'm not a I'm not a doctor, and I don't have any theological degrees or anything like that. But I just love the Word of God, and I love to dig into it as deep as I can and try to figure mm-hmm. out what the Lord wants to say to us. So, well, if you're used to dealing with third through fifth graders, we're just going to ask <laughs> you to dumb it down a little bit for Tom and I. Sweet, oh, yeah. Okay. I'm Maybe. the only I'm the only man that has to wear a crash helmet. To a to a chess match because he he says that all the time, Dave. So intellectually yeah. awkward, he trips over himself. Well, um, by the way, let me just ask you quickly: your your previous two books, which to me uh, really raised a lot of eyebrows, got a lot of thought provoking thoughts in me. What was the kind of response you've gotten on those two books, both on the extreme positive and even if there were any on the negative side? Well, there were a lot of good good and positive reviews um, for the, most of the ones that read it they were almost all always positive and got a lot of good emails and I put those up on my website and, mm-hmm. and there are you know people established in the prophecy world that I would love to uh, understand what they thought about it but yeah. uh, alas they have not read the books and it's difficult to get them to read them because they're so busy, number one, and number two, you know, I'm a nobody, and who wants to read? Well, they got a lot of books to sell, too. They have they have a lot of books based on their own um, yeah. positions that they've already, you know, espoused, so, um, but yeah, it's, it's um, I I don't think I've gotten very many negative, negative reviews, just, hmm. just a few things here and there in the book that maybe they didn't agree with, but the overall premise of... Earthquakes and a shaking of the earth at the uh, future resurrection of the dead in Christ is something that a lot of people agree with. Well, I recommend our listeners get those books. And they can go to earthquakeresurrection.com and get them, right? Right. Okay. Get those books. Uh, I recommend them. Uh, I think the worst response I've ever had from people when I introduced some of their principles to someone was a blank stare. <laughs> like they had sensory overload or like keyboard lockup. Like, you know... The, could this really be true? Blah 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 blah, and you know you start to wave your hand in front of their face. So, uh, but our Futurians—they're a different lot. They're an open-minded lot. No, they're Bereans. But let's talk about your new book now. Um, what prompted you to write uh, "Deconstructing Lucifer," and why you thought this effort and subject matter was important enough for you and the readers to warrant all the effort you put in it? Well, it was probably a, two or three years ago I was listening to another Bible teacher whom I respect greatly um, kind of blow my mind and tell me that the traditional story about Lucifer was not correct and that there's a totally different way to understand um, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, 
in the passages in Ezekiel uh, chapter 28. And so when I heard that, I was not happy. I was in a you know kind of a state of cognitive dissonance where what I had been taught my whole life was was being challenged, and uh, I didn't like that. So um, over the last two or three years, I I kind of prayed and contemplated about you know what I if I wanted to write a book about that, what would I write? Mm-hmm. And so the research took place over that time and uh, came to the conclusion that's in the book that um, that the, the teacher that I was listening to is correct. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's uh, basically what prompted me to, to write the book and to touch on things that even that teacher didn't even touch on. Yeah. Um, well, so. now, you say early in your book, and for example, in your earlier uh, prophecy books, you put in reasons why prophecy was important, mm-hmm. and those sections were so good, I have actually referenced them in other things I've written. Because oh. uh, it's a very concise way to show, here's why people should care about prophecy. Here's how it affects other parts of your life. And you also follow that same tradition in this book. Uh, up front, you put in, there's three reasons up front on why you think this subject should be studied by Christian readers, or subjects like this. Yes. What were the three reasons? Yes, I like to uh, I like to be ready for that question because it's a, it's one I always get. Why did Why did you write the book? Right. But, um, but but this is a broader thing. Of why should this topic be of interest to people? What's the objective to be accomplished? Right, right. Um, you know, the main objective. I I I think there's a problem when Christians try to debate with atheists and and they don't have all the the good answers that that, that they want to have mm-hmm. um, and it's usually the problem of evil where, where a question is asked like you know if God is a good God why do bad things happen to good people or mm-hmm. why is there evil in the world why yeah. would a good God allow something like that and a lot of times the answer is um, well God made everything good but there was a rebellion by an angel named Lucifer who who became Satan and he brought evil into the world he tempted Adam and Eve by rebelling. Mm-hmm. So uh, the problem with that response is that it doesn't answer all the questions that that need to be addressed because the atheist can come back and say, well, um, if God is all-knowing, then why didn't, why didn't he just uh, vaporize Lucifer and not, not allow him to fall, not allow him to rebel? That would have avoided all the evil and you know everything would have been just great in the Garden of Eden. So, um, what I present in the book is is an alternative ex- explanation that I think uh, brings more glory to God and um, puts on a pedestal His sovereignty, God's sovereignty, in, in being able to do bring out his, bring His agenda forth and uh, His plan. Um, with uh, with Satan being created in in the way he was from the beginning, evil. So we can maybe get into that a little bit later. But sure, well, that that's that's the the main reason probably that I I would state that I wrote the book. And the other reasons were I um, I just have a love for the Word of God and I love you know Bible studies uh, and I loved I love to share the truth when when I find out things that. Uh, People don't believe, and and I believe that they're true, and 
that, you know, there's probably 90, 95% of the people that are listening that believe the traditional story of Lucifer, and that's that's the uh, target audience that I, that I would want to um, address. Okay. To, you know, to see if they agree with, with what I'm presenting and just go from there. So. Right. And, uh, yeah, you mentioned right up front your desire to pursue the truth and your love for the Bible in particular in this. And that yes. section up front has something, I think, unprecedented in a David Lowe book. There's a, there's a picture in there. <laughs> and I thought it was some kind of cherub, but it was actually uh, you in a sleeping bag, I think, doing a Bible study. Uh, yeah. In it. I so love that picture. Thought it was some kind of heavenly creature, but it was it was you in there. Yeah. That's <laughs> your notebook, notebook in your Bible. Yeah. I was uh, looking at my Bible for Bible quiz. When was that circa about what year? Uh, 1982. 82. Okay. Yeah. Makes me wow. feel old. I was graduating from high school then. I was I was four. Listening to Devo. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, Devo. Yeah, we better move on before right. we go down that path. Um, <laughs> the key passage that you spend the bulk of the book on is Isaiah 14. You've already alluded to that. Can you dive right in? I know we've got a lot to to, to talk about, and hopefully you're aware of how we're going to unfold different aspects. But just give us a general familiarity with Isaiah 14, uh, how it can be interpreted in various ways, as far as the subject of the verses who's who is being talked about there. Right, right. Well, um, you're talking about Isaiah 14:12, where um, how thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son, son of the morning, is uh, is the King James rendition of that. What I wanted to do in this book is to go back as far as I could into the translations, follow the translations forward from the original Hebrew, and come to a conclusion regarding what. The whether the translation is correct as we have it in English today and how that English translation came about. So I had to go all the way back to the original Hebrew. And when I say the original Hebrew, I'm talking about, um, well, there, there's the transliteration of, of the Hebrew word, which is Hillel bin Shakar, when it's uh, referring to the word Lucifer. When you actually look at the Hebrew um, the Hebrew word where there's actually the, um, the symbols, the actual Hebrew letters, um, there are actually two ways that those uh, Hebrew letters can be transliterated into English. One of them is halal, and one of them is yalal, with a Y. So the halal has a meaning um, to shine, to be praised. Yalal has a meaning of to howl. Okay, so uh, when you go down one path, you have to shine, and when you go down the other path, you have to howl. Now, when you look at the context of that verse, you say, okay, does does a translation into English of howl, son of the morning, have any, um, does that make sense in the context? And you'd have to say, yes, it does, because the passage was given to the king of Babylon, who was proud and um, was being brought down into shale, was basically told he was going to die. And not You're saying the subject matter of the remaining part of that chapter yes. is addressed directly to the king of Babylon. Right, right. Or a portion of it. Now, mm-hmm. now, my understanding of that has always been that he's talking poetically, and he's talking both about the, the, the king of Babylon there, 
and he's also he's also looking through that in a poetical thing to also talk about the power behind the throne, if you will, mm-hmm. which which is why he sort of he sort of goes back and forth there with with various sort of uh, imagery such as the the shades there and the cedars of Lebanon and I think that's verse eight. I have my Bible mm-hmm. software open, but I can't scroll fast enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, cedars of Lebanon there in in eight. And right. the cypresses and stuff, and then the the shades and nine. Yes, yes, uh, and and that's what I believed too. Um, growing up, that that there was a power behind the king of Babylon, and it was an esoteric reference to that power. Okay. So yeah, I I agree, and that that is one way to take it. But um, but when I was doing my study, you know, I, I basically went back and said, let's let's actually look at the words and let's see. What they mean first before we before we kind of go there. So um, I I just want to point out that uh, going back to the Howell uh, translation, Howell Son of the Morning, um, there are there are two other places in two other references in the Old Testament where that where those uh, where that Hebrew word is found, and in both places it is translated Howell. Of course, it's not translated Lucifer because this is the only place where Lucifer is found in the entirety of the Bible, that word, uh, in English. So, But if you go to the actual Hebrew word that that is translated into that English word, it's found three times, once here in Isaiah 14.12, and the other two times, uh, Ezekiel 21.12 and Zechariah 11.2. And in both of those two places, the English word was translated as howl. So... That that's the one branch, kind of kind of the, the one way we can go on this. Um, obviously, that translation did not win the day uh, through the centuries, <laughs> because uh, when we look at the other translation, which was based on the root word halal, which, which means to be praised or to shine, to be clear, something like that. That is the translation that won the day, and through history. We can we can follow that track, so that's that's the track we need to follow since that's the one that everyone has used. But, but before I go too far down that path, let me just point out that the Aramaic Peshetta, which um, Syriac Peshetta, excuse me, which is in the Aramaic language, uh, translated into English with the word howl, and also in there's a Greek translation, um, Aquila of Sinope, translated with the Greek word Olo. Ololuzon, which means to howl. So um, they they believe that that Hebrew word should have been translated into English as howl, or into their Greek and Aramaic languages as as howl. Um, and also, if you want to look at the Latin language, Saint Jerome, there was there's a quote by Saint Jerome in which he was uh, providing commentary on this very passage, and he said that if if it were to be literally translated, um, let me just read it. For greater ease of understanding, we translated this passage as follows. How you have fallen from heaven, Lucifer, who arose in the morning. But if we were to render a literal translation from the Hebrew, it would read, How you have fallen from heaven, howling son of the dawn. So that's St. Jerome, the author of the Latin Vulgate. But um, once again, he uh, did not translate it with how he used um, he used Lucifer 
in Latin, which which that word in in Latin we'll get to a little bit later, actually means um, was was a nickname for a planet, uh, the planet Venus. Mm-hmm. So well, now, there are early translations of um, first the Old Testament and then the entire Bible. Of course, we have the Septuagint, which was done before the time of Christ, several hundred years. Uh, Masoretic text comes later and others. So they had to begin wrestling with actually codifying in written terms uh, this this writing. What were the decisions they made? What does the historical record show from you of the where they made the calls on this and, and maybe why? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the Septuagint is the key, really, uh, because it was the springboard from the original Hebrew into the Greek. And the Septuagint was... Uh, what was actually used um, to translate into many other languages, such as Latin, uh, and from Latin, a lot of the other languages. So if you look at how those 70 Jews who translated the Septuagint into Greek... Hey, Dave, they, we're getting a little creaking. I don't know if it's on your headset, if you got it or something. Okay. I mean, something flexing there. We can just get a little bit Because we're getting good fidelity on your end. There's something, yeah, something rattling there. Okay, let me see if I can fix that. All right. Um, I'll try to be more still, too. Um, There is the Septuagint translation, which for that word uh, translates as heosphoros. And that uh, is translated into English as morning star. And it is a nickname for the planet Venus. And if you you go and study all of the, uh, even the secular writers... They, when they use that word, chaos for us, it's always in reference to the planet Venus when it precedes the sun in the morning. So, hence the name morning star. It mm-hmm. never had, that Greek word chaos for us, never had any meaning of Lucifer, never had any meaning of any uh, entity, proper name of a person or a spiritual being. It always meant morning star, and it was a nickname for the uh, stellar planet Venus, hmm. not a star. Hmm. So, so uh, yeah. That, one, of that, the, one of the things you explain in your book, that it was a good little astronomy lesson for me, mm-hmm. is that Venus actually, uh, and I went back and went and read on the Venus webpage <laughs> to, to learn this too, but uh-huh. it aches. It, Venus you can has its own webpage It has now? its own webpage, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that it uh, actually is the is the main star you see when the sun sets, and also the one you see right before the the sun comes up. Yes, because I I think is it usually low on the horizon? I guess uh, most of the time, uh, but it's really bright. In fact, it's the only other body outside the moon that is bright enough to cast a shadow on Earth. Yeah, which I think is sort of intriguing spiritually when you think about that. Mm-hmm. What other entity? Could you correlate somebody to that would be casting a shadow on Earth aside from the moon? <laughs> uh, so, but but th- that's why in mythology and all this other writing, Venus was sort of unique amongst other planets and stars because of its brightness and the fact that it it appeared sort of twice hmm. over a night in a given day. And, that's right. Uh, it was interesting and why why they found allusion to that, you know, even yeah. in the biblical record. You're right, and and even the Greeks had two different. Greek words for Venus um, when it preceded the sun and when it came after the sun. So, um, but this chaos for us is when it precedes the sun and brings mm-hmm. in the morning light. Okay. So, um, so then let's tracing it. 
tracing a little further into the Latin, we have in that uh, for that phrase the translation of, of Saint Jerome. He uh, he again followed the shining body um, translation, not howl, even though he he said the literal meaning of that would be howl. But he used the word Lucifer, which is the Latin word for morning star. And if you read all of the secular um, Latin writers, they also use that word Lucifer for the planet Venus, um, without without fail almost. So. Here again, we have um, we have no reference to a to Satan or a or a literal person. However, when you see when you want to look at how Jerome commentated on what that what that verse actually meant, he said it was referring to the devil. So um, he was after a lot of the early uh, anti-Nicene Church fathers, which we can get into maybe a little later, but. Um, he may have been influenced by them, but uh, so kind of following the path down, we have uh, the the early English translations, um, such as Wycliffe and Coverdale and Martin Luther's German translation, also who uh, translated using uh, using the English word Lucifer or the German word Morgenstern. And if you look at all of those translations, most of the translations will have marginal notes. In I've seen actual copies of these early English versions, and in the marginal notes, they will say something like "morning star" or "day star," mm-hmm. or they will say Nebuchadnezzar was being compared to Venus or the morning star. So they wanted to make it clear there weren't a lot of marginal notes in those early English versions, but this was one verse where they, they put a little asterisk in there and said, I want you to know that this is referring to the morning star when I say Lucifer. So, um, Let me make sure but, I understand this right. Okay. The, 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 the path that begins to mature and evolve based on collective decisions made by these individuals was that they see these words, they have a choice between the howl approach or the shining approach. They go from shining to something that they associate with shining, which is Venus. Yes. And, and then from there, it gets sort of into the in the constellation. You have a, you've mentioned a, uh, as you go from the Greek, you, you go from the Hebrew to the Greek, that creates its own challenges. Now you go into the Latin, it creates the challenge, because the Latin word for this Lucifer suddenly starts to look very little like what the original Hebrew was. It exactly. sort of sets up a situation where, where things start to get really interesting. Exactly. And how do we even know that, that that's what the origin, that that's what Isaiah wanted to convey was the planet Venus? We really don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, all we know is that that Hebrew word means to shine in its secondary. Actually, I, I think what Isaiah really meant was howl, son of the dawn. Mm-hmm. But um, that's just my personal opinion. And, and a lot of other people, mm-hmm. not a lot, but there are others that agree with that. But. And, and part right. of your part of your rationale you said too was that when the word is used elsewhere in scripture it's it's as howl. Yeah, exactly. So that would reinforce that. Okay. But the key is the Septuagint, which is the turning point in using that chaos for us Greek word which meant morning star and, and was the planet Venus. So from there on really uh that's that's the meaning that everybody 
associated with that word, hmm. not what Isaiah may have initially thought. But one, one English version that I want to point out is different in the marginal notes. When you look at the English, early English translations, and that is the Douay Reigns Roman Catholic transla- uh, translation into English. You see, the Catholics wanted the Latin version, the Latin Vulgate, to be used by the Catholics. But when they saw all these English rivals, um, you know, yeah. the Protestant Reformation coming out with the English languages, it was kind of a, if you can't beat them, join them mm-hmm. response that they put out this Douay Reims translation into English, and they used the Latin Vulgate of St. Jerome. And in their marginal notes, they say, well, let's see if I can quote it here. Basically, what they say is this this means day star, but um, it's really referring to the devil and Satan. So all through these English translations, we have them saying it means morning star, which is the planet Venus. For the Catholics, it, meant it means morning star, which is Satan. And I believe that is what has uh, resulted in what we have today in both the Roman Catholic and Protestant branches is the understanding that Lucifer is a proper name for Satan, the devil. Mm-hmm. And it really never should have gone that way. Never should have. That's, I don't think that's, that was the meaning that, that the prophet wanted to convey. Well, you know, that, that text was originally written to ancient Jews when the, the prophet was there before them. Given, Of course, you know, the Bible's meant to speak to all of us uh, generations, but it was given originally to them. Um, what is do, do do historians know what an early Jewish understanding was of Satan and Lucifer? Yeah, we really don't have a lot. When you look at at the early Jewish writings, um, like the Talmud and, and things like that, they really don't spend a lot of time on Satan, and that's kind of because in the Old Testament Satan is rarely referred to. Um, you know, you have you have the passages in Job at, the, at chapters one and two. You have the passage in Zechariah chapter 3, uh, you have a reference, First um, Chronicles 21, when he, uh, the adversary rose up against King David to take a census of his army. And that's really, uh, that's really about it, other than here in Genesis chapter 3, we, we now know from the New Testament that the serpent was Satan. We know that from mm-hmm. the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. So the, the Jews really didn't spend a lot of time on Satan. They... What I what I found was that the most common view is that he was a member of the divine council, and that he was um, an adversary. That's mm-hmm. you know that's what his name meant. So obviously we see that with uh, Job, with King David, with Prophet Joshua and Zechariah. That's kind of the role he took on. Mm-hmm. Um, so you really don't see the any reference to Lucifer. That word didn't even exist for the Jews. Obviously, um, you, you really didn't have any reference uh, to the planet Venus until you got to that Septuagint translation, mm-hmm. which, which was early, what, 2nd, 3rd century B.C.? Right, right, so, right. Okay. What, what about the, well, like a lot of the intertestamental writings, such as uh, like the Apocalypse of Moses? I think there's a chapter, if I recall correctly, again, my Bible software is running slow, but... Uh, there's a chapter in there uh, where uh, Adam and Adam and Satan are having a uh, having a discussion, and they use Satan and devil 
interchangeably talking about what happened in Genesis 3, and he gives this explanation of why he why he sort of jumped ship at Genesis 3 by saying, you know, well, I didn't, you know, I I was mad that God commanded me to worship Adam, and it made me mad, so I, I jumped ship, and then I fell like, uh, uh, you know, then I fell, fell from heaven. All right. Which, which, which is, you know, I mean, that, that sort of, you know, very similar to, especially Ezekiel. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I found that also in a, in a work called The Life of Adam and Eve, and also uh, Slavonic Enoch, which mm-hmm. is, um, not, not the Book of the Watchers Enoch, not the first one, but. It's one of those other Enochs. There's it's like one of the other ones. 40 of them floating yeah, around. Like giants or something. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that, that was a common, uh, explanation. Uh, in the intertestamental period, uh, for for Satan um, and and the devil that that kind of developed. Um, and you also have Josephus and and uh, I can't remember the guy's name. Philo, Philo Judeus is that is that? You guys help me out if you remember that. No, I don't. There Sorry. were two writers that kind of were uh, Jewish historians and. They really didn't write a lot about Satan either. They they were more concerned with trying to come up with a logical explanation how an animal could talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, maybe it was a, that's that's sort of my take on all of this stuff is that uh, you know the Nakash there. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Mike Kaiser's research on that, where the Nakash in both Ezekiel and Isaiah. Uh, that that's all used and it's 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 a play on words there. There's a, there's actually a couple other places there, but I'm uh, I'm I think I'm probably getting ahead of you. So yeah, I, I do cover <laughs> that in I do cover that in my later in the book. So uh-huh. <laughs> well, uh, you mentioned the Book of Enoch. Yeah. Um, uh, as I under you correct me if I'm wrong here, David. You and you and uh, Tom both. Um, my, my my feeling is the the Book of First Enoch has the strongest credentials behind it. I believe that was the one that was founded at the Dead Sea Scrolls. I agree. Was part of the Ethiopian texts as far as their canon and things like that. When you start reading the second, third, you know, outboard from there, it gets to be more and more fantastic and hard to, really hard to harmonize with the rest of our scripture. I agree. So, um, of that, how does the Book of Enoch factor in, which, which was an ancient book, um, because it was stored at, at Qumran when the Dead Sea Scrolls was there. So this was something that at least some portion of the teachers was were privy to back in the ancient biblical era. So how does this influence uh, their understanding of, of who Satan was? Well, when you actually read First Enoch, the Book of the Watchers, you'll be hard-pressed to even find Satan mentioned in the, in the text. Really, it focuses on the 200 fallen watcher angels, Azazel in particular, and Simjaza, mm-hmm. and what they did um, in in coming down, rebelling, uh, and, and becoming capable of uh, having relations with human women, and mm-hmm. what their punishment was. So, um, what I found, really, the only thing that I could find about Satan in that entire passage was that um, he is not Simjaza and he is not Azazel. Mm-hmm. As, as you know, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, it talks about how the sin of the Israelites was placed on the scapegoat Azazel. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, that's, that could be another name for Satan. Well, no, it isn't another, another name for Satan. It's one of the watcher angels. Mm-hmm. His name was Azazel, and to him ascribe all sin. 
Um, but I'll just read a passage that, that makes a clear distinction between Azazel and the other watcher angels and Satan. It says in First Enoch 54, 4 and 6, These are being prepared for the hosts of Azazel so that they may take them and cast them into the abyss of complete condemnation, and they shall cover their jaws and rough with rough stones as the Lord of Spirits commanded. And Michael and Gabriel and Raphael and Phanuel shall take hold of them on that great day and cast them on that day into the burning furnace that the Lord of Spirits may take vengeance on them for their unrighteousness in becoming subject to Satan and leading astray those who dwell on the earth. Mm-hmm. So these angels became subject to Satan in some way. And that's really the only um, mention of Satan in, in, mm-hmm. in the book of the Watchers. And if anyone somehow was confused and associated Azazel or some Jaza with Satan, it's very clear that in those texts, you know, if we take them for straight up for what they say, they they were imprisoned in into a pit historically. They were dealt with in the past historically, whereas we read in the Bible that Satan will be put in a pit right at the beginning of the millennium and reside there for a thousand years. So so that alone should be something to separate the identities of these particular personalities. Yeah, I agree I would, with you. I would, I would think. Um, what about uh, the church fathers, particularly the anti-Nicene church fathers, the ones in the, you know, before the Council of Nicaea that had such a huge impact on what became our doctrine of the church itself? What did their writings have in influencing our understanding of, of who Lucifer was and these passages? Yeah, they they did have a big influence. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but um, you know, I always go back and and look to see what you know, Irenaeus or Justin Martyr or Ignatius or Tertullian or some of these other early church fathers. Whenever um, I have a question about a topic, what mm-hmm. they what they thought about it, and I I have always held them in high regard. So um, imagine my angst with uh, realizing that all of these men are in unison when they interpret um, basically Isaiah 14.12 as referring to the devil. So, um, you know, that that is what I discovered when I, when I looked at all these fellas. Um, some of the early ones like Polycarp, uh, Papias, some of those names really didn't ha- mention Satan. Or, or the devil, or connect him in any way to Isaiah 14, 12. Um, but what I, the first one that I kind of looked at was Ignatius, and he was kind of important because he was the first one to connect, as, as far as I could find in writing, Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven, and connect that to, um, to an ancient fall of the devil as an angel. So um, we really don't have that anywhere in the Old Testament unless you look at Isaiah 14.12. So that was important. Uh, But in the book, I I say I'm searching for the Lucifer Primer, which is the first mention or the first association by one of the church fathers of the devil to Isaiah 14.12 in that passage. And what I discovered was the very first mention was by the first first connection to that verse was Justin Martyr. 
and he was in 110 to 165 A.D. Mm-hmm. So that would have been after basically all the apostles had passed away. But um, you can kind of trace him back to Polycarp and Ignatius, who who did have contact with the apostles. Mm-hmm. But he was um, he mentioned when referring to a, a responding to Homer, one of the Greek poets who was uh, trying to come up with. Uh, a connection with the devil, um, he wrote that the expressions which Isaiah the prophet uttered regarding him, the devil, uh, are were written about, referred to by Homer, and he didn't even know it. So, mm-hmm. so that was kind of the first place where I, I found that Isaiah uh, 14 was connected to the devil, and so kind of from then on. Now, Origen really moved the bar forward quite a bit, didn't he? Oh yeah, going in that path. He sure did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, never, never take your theology from Origen. That's always well, a good. Yeah. That's my. That's if if Augustine and Origen are involved, then yeah, I'm going to go somewhere else. I tend, I tend to agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> uh, here's here's the important quote. Um, to kind of to kind of move this along. Here's the important quote from Origen that I found in his book, uh, commentary on First Principles. Regarding the devil and his angels and the opposing influences, the teaching of the church has laid down that these beings exist indeed, but what they are or how they exist, it has not explained with sufficient clearness. This opinion, however, is held by most, that the devil was an angel and that, having become an apostate, he induced many of the angels as possible to fall away with himself. These up to the present time are called his angels. So what I what I drew from that was look, Origen's saying there's no, there's there's nowhere in scripture um in the teaching of the church that, that we can find anything in concrete about the devil and his angels and their origin. But this opinion is held by most. So what was the opinion based on? Well, it was based on their interpretation. If, so I thought that was really interesting that it was only an opinion that he considered not something that could be absolutely concrete. Go to this scripture and you can see it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It had so. started to calcify into doctrine by that point already. What I would say, I would say it, it's interesting. I have often speculated, uh, well, more than speculated, I've talked with some other people who know more about the Bible than I do. Uh, that Luke 18 or Luke 10:18, where he says, "I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven," that whole thing, that was always taken sort of as a given that at that point uh, Satan lost his ability to accuse, and was thus judgment was now committed to Christ, which is oh, yes. which brings us to this new sort of the, you know, there's a there's uh, for lack of a better term, there's you know uh, 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 a I don't know. Uh, Something clicked. Yeah, there's a change of views as you read through the Bible from the Old Testament to the New on oh. Satan. And as, uh, you know, uh, some people call that the dispensational view. I don't know if that's entirely correct. But mm-hmm. I guess the point is uh, the the point is is that, you know, uh, 
I don't know what the point is. I thought that was an interesting. Well, point. I, I totally agree. <laughs> Sorry. I totally agree with you, Tom, on, on on Luke ten eighteen uh-huh. that it is referring to a time when Satan lost his power to accuse, mm-hmm. um, or the, you know that he was may, maybe a little later in, in uh, when when Jesus actually ascended to the. Yeah, so perhaps at the perhaps at the or cross, or you know, yeah. there's 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 timing issues there. But it, but it could be viewed though that they were aware that the gig was up. Mm-hmm. The principalities yes. and powers knew, Something and particularly is. Satan gave a gave a pitch early on on the mountain to try to tempt Jesus, and when he did not fall for that and worship him, I th- I think he knew that was bad news of Blackrock at that point. Totally. Yes. Yes, that was uh that was the key moment. Uh that kind of what I explained in my book mm. about that passage is that it took place in the first century, but, but when you when you read these early church fathers and when you you know, when you listen to modern teachers, they'll say, you know, Jesus was all of a sudden hearkening back to an ancient time I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. He, he saw him fall you know, at the beginning of the creation, um, you know, like Jesus was pondering and thinking about what the disciples had said. You know, we've seen the devil, we've seen the demons cast out in your name. And Jesus kind of looked up and says, yeah, but I saw something even more impressive than that. I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Mm-hmm. And they and they jump back in a, to a context that has nothing to do with, with that with the context of that passage. Why would Jesus all of a sudden say something to them like that that had that jumped back into the ancient uh, beginning of time when what he was actually referring to was, and what they were referring to was, the mission of the seventy disciples when they had power over the enemy. And what I think Jesus really meant was that you guys saw something in the physical realm, but the demons were cast out. I saw something in the spiritual realm at that same time. Satan was so afraid and so freaked out by what was happening that not me, but you, my extensions, had power over his kingdom. And he came out of mm-hmm. his his place in the heavens down uh, as fast as he could. He felt like lightning uh, from heaven to the earth to see what was going on. Well, and, you know, hmm, if that's has true. nothing to do with an ancient fall at all. If if that's true, if that you know conjecture is true. What it says to me then is that during that intervening period of time, and it it sort of goes back to what I recollect in the book of Hebrews and emphasized uh, our, our Lord's role in the heavens as our priest, uh, is that basically in front of the court, uh, in front of heaven's throne, God's throne, we go from having a prosecuting attorney to having a public defender. When when Jesus hmm. supplants Christ's role, That's great. it turns out it impacts mankind. <laughs> And, you know, that's a big part of the good news, um, if, if that is true. Because, you know, we, we obviously emphasize the important things that, you know, God became flesh, dwelt among us, uh, died on the cross, was our substitutionary atonement, paid the price for our sins, atoned, uh, that our sins in the past were forever erased, uh, and that we could be reconciled to God. But then we have a status where now, for the, from that point forward, uh, we have an advocate before the Father, as Scripture says, and no longer an accuser before yes. the Father. You you just basically built my case for uh, the correct meaning of Revelation chapter 12. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because okay. that that's a place where in the timeline, 
uh, if you look at Revelation chapter 12, the context is clearly the first century in the, the ascension of, of Jesus, you know, the birth of Jesus by, uh, by the woman, and then his uh, ascension up to, to God and to his throne, which all took place in the first century. Then you have this um, the dragon um, losing his place in heaven. Uh, and, you know, having a battle with Michael and, and his angels, uh, basically what I think happened was, like you said, Satan lost his place to accuse. In the, in the timeline where he, in the past, was able to go up, like in the, like in the uh, book of Job, and come before God and accuse and uh, be an adversary, this was, at that time, completely revo- revoked. Basically, he was defrocked of his position at God's throne, and he could not go up there anymore. He was cast down to the earth, which is where he is now, not on the earth perhaps, but um, you know, the prince of the power of the air. He no longer has access to, to the throne of God anymore, and that's because Jesus is sitting at God's right hand. And I think that's what Revelation chapter 12 wanted us to see. And so uh, it goes on to say that Satan began a campaign based on great wrath or great anger that he had. And that's because he realized that he had been dethroned, so to speak, from that heavenly place that he had always been able to go. So he was going to take it out on God's children. First now, somebody, now, you know, and, you know I, hadn't, I hadn't really planned to get into this this early in the discussion, but while we're in it, since we've waded into it, yes. uh, some of the questions that I think our listeners will ask about this interpretation of Revelation 12, which is really compelling, and I think Revelation 12 is the, probably the most enigmatic chapter of the whole book of Revelation. And I think it's partially the key to unlocking the meaning of the book of Revelation itself. Yeah, it's but, kind of a paraphrase. Right but there are, there are a couple things that would make it challenging. Uh, and I want to get your comment on this, on thinking about it, because um, as, as you mentioned, Revelation 12.5, I just called it up here. Um, uh, she had a child. He was ready to devour it. It was caught up to God in his throne in Revelation 12.5, which is what what under your interpretation, and most people would say, that was at a period in time when, when Jesus was called up, ascended into heaven uh, at, at this point. But then it gets into a passage where it says, the woman fleeing into the wilderness, that, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. So there's a specific number of days given to feed her right. uh, at that point. Do you see that as sequential? Now, it does not say there, it, af, after this, the woman fled into the wilderness. So we don't have to constrain the scripture to mean that this is a sequential event. Right. But do you, do you feel like this is referring to something immediately after the ascension of Christ? This, uh, attack of the, uh, of the, the, I guess the dragon, you could say? Uh, yes. after I, the woman? Yeah, uh, I believe that uh, verse 6 is jumping a bit ahead in the first century to uh, the 70 A.D. flight by the Jews uh, into into the wilderness like Jesus told them to do in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, um, you know, when they saw Jerusalem surrounded by armies. And uh, that happened in around 66 A.D., and it was actually 1,260 days or three and a half years until 70 A.D. when it, um, when it basically ended the attack by the by the Romans on Jerusalem. 
Um, and so, yeah, then you have verse 7 where, the, where this war breaks out, and people want to go uh, jump from that context in the first century all the way back to the beginning of time and say, oh, here's this ancient battle between Michael and his angels against the dragon. Well, um, I, I really don't see any reason to, to jump back to the, for, to, the, to the ancient times. Why not just stay in the context of this passage where it's trying to explain to us something that we couldn't see in the, in the spiritual realm, that there was a battle going on because Satan had been uh, cast out of heaven. Hmm. Okay. But yeah, um, in, in my first book, I, I kind of take a different position on on what everybody believes about Revelation chapters four and five. I see that as happening in the first century, and referring to the ascension of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, when when we're shown, you know, the Lamb all of a sudden appearing in, in the throne room. So this is another case where I, I think it's clear that it, there's a first century context that we need uh, to keep keep in mind when we're trying to understand when the battle takes place, when, you know, the dragon was so angry that he he could not reside in heaven anymore. Well, you, you know, it's it's funny. It got my wheels turning a little bit uh, about, because to me there's a lot of challenges back and forth in this Revelation 12 and looking at it this way. And, and by the way, I, I would say for our listeners that the, the main points you make in your book aren't hinged on this one chapter. Oh, I mean, no. you can take main parts of it, and if you don't buy other parts, that's that's pretty common, I think. But one thing that got me, and I just wanted both of your point, I, your your guys' thoughts on this. I looked at the next verse in Revelation 12, I believe it's verse 6, when it talks about the woman fleeing in the wilderness. Uh-huh. And, and it says that they should feed her a thousand two hundred and three score days. Now, um, could that closely be an approximation of the time of Christ's ministry on earth? That's my that's my understanding of it. Okay. Uh, so it, 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 one alternative description of that length of time could be of Christ's ministry. Hmm. Well, it says that she fled into the wilderness. And I looked up that word in Greek as arimos, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it has an interesting p- point to it. It says, I'm just looking here in Strong's uh, on it, and, the, and one of the definitions of it, uh, it relates to of a uh, bereft or of a flock deserted by the shepherd. And it made me think of what Jesus said when he saw the people during his ministry and said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Mm-hmm. And he began to shepherd them during that period of time, uh, which was also a three and a half year period. And it describes, I'm reading out of the King James here, where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. And, and the, the whole feeding and everything relates to a kind of nurturing that sheep get. And in fact, the, the word um, a place prepared is hetoimazo, I believe is uh, something close to where it's... Uh, hetoimazo? Yeah, hetoimazo. Maybe, maybe that's it. Um but but it's an interesting uh, definition of it. It says it's uh, used as a metaphor to prepare the minds of men to give the Messiah a fit reception and secure his blessings. Hmm. So, so that would be an interesting alternative view of yeah. that verse, was that this possibly was going on during the ministry of Christ. 
that that he was doing this kind of activity this period of time. Mm-hmm. The parts that I have a hard time with, unless we really get really allegorical on a on a historical uh, conclusion, is when it talks about how um, the dragon pursues to the point where a a a great flood comes out. Right. In pursuing uh, the serpent, cast off water as a flood after the woman twelve fifteen. Uh, to be carried away, but the earth helped her and swallowed it up in 16. Do you have any comments about that, about what that is referring to? Well, I think I think that section down there in 13 through 16 is giving more detail on what is referred to in verse 6. That's, that's kind of the position I take, um, that it's kind of exploding verse 6 and giving us more detail on that. Mm-hmm. And what would you think the, of the water that comes out as a flood? What is uh, that symbolizing? Well, I think that would symbolize the, the armies, the Roman armies, basically. Um, I think, doesn't Daniel chapter 9 refer to the end of it shall come like a flood? And it's talking about mm-hmm. the, uh, the pursuit mm-hmm. of the Roman armies. and It's talking about the same event, actually, um, mm-hmm. the 70 AD uh, invasion. So, yeah, I kind of... I, I see where you're heading. That it's well, even even the the water uh, hydro, I believe, is the word used here. Yep. Uh, is is used also in Revelation 17 to to refer to nations, people, tribes, and tongues. Mm. So I guess it could be a larger mass of people mm-hmm. uh, that are coming up into Jerusalem at this time. But you know, this is a completely different way just to take a look at this chapter. Yes. In in, in a historicist view. Uh, some people may not like it because some may think the futurist view is certainly much more interesting because it's something waiting to be fulfilled. But what's interesting in at least considering this op- option is that it shows a little bit of what occurred in the heavens yes. that we may not have understood. That there were some big events that happened that unless you consider it as a possibility of a historical event, th- you would miss the fact that some big things have already occurred. Mm-hmm. In the heavenlies in the past, and and for our benefit, you know, in, in reading back on this chapter, uh, reading back on this chapter ten here says, "Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come," uh, which is, you know, that has to be if if you're taking that to mean Luke ten eighteen that they're referring to the same event, and I don't see why that I mean that seems to me to be the clear thing. It has to be. Yeah, chapter twelve kind of has to be like a historicist thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, you know, yeah, I don't know if I can go that far because I think there's going to be an ultimate final battle. There is still a future sure. future fulfillment of of other kind of things. I guess the question is how much of this could be referring to things that have that have occurred in the past that will be finished in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and there's 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 kind of three ways that people have taken this that that war in heaven Some it can only be historicist i'm putting my foot yeah. down okay well <laughs> just kidding if, Sorry. Tom, if tom bionic says it i believe it and that settles it well, some say it happened in the ancient past some some say it happened in the first century like me and then some say it's going to happen in the future yeah. i mean which one is it there, really there can only be one not not sure. all three that that this battle took place. Well, you know what I hope is that our listeners, our Futurians, our Bereans, will be educated on the rationales for all of these and the arguments. And if they can be settled in their mind, be settled in their mind, but be educated on them. So when they see things happen, they'll be able to know and not have their face shaken. 
if it turns out a little different than, than what they think. And that's what I think is part of the power in books like yours, is it causes us to look with a completely different set of lenses, and we may find out some surprising things. But your other two books had the same kind of effect as well. I, I want to get back to another point that was made earlier, uh, where you were talking about the early church fathers. And if I gathered right, you you suggested that they may have been influenced by secular writers at the time, like Homer. Um, what Can you clarify again what Homer was saying that w- somehow could have tainted the mind of what they saw in Isaiah 14? What was the specific kind of things he was writing about? Right. Uh, let's see. That would have been uh, the reference to Justin Martyr. Um, I believe, yes. So, um, so basically, Justin Martyr was um, trying to answer a charge of Homer, who was um, who wrote Homer's obligations to the sacred writers, and he was um, making Justin Martyr was making the argument that. The Greek poet Homer used the writings of Moses in Genesis to graft to craft his mythological stories. So you know he'd look in Genesis and then he'd mm-hmm. come up with yeah. a funky story mm-hmm. about you know the Greek gods. Sure. And so he did, he Justin Martyr said, well you did this with the Garden of Eden too, and uh, you did it with the Tower of Babel, you did it with creation. So um, so basically, just what Justin Martyr came back to him and said was. Um, this this one who was cast out of heaven, whom the sacred scriptures call the devil, um, is one that this poet Homer gives the name Ate, and said he was hurled down from heaven. And and in the poem that Justin Martyr quotes when he's saying, "Hey, look, you were you're referring to the ancient fall of Satan when Isaiah the yeah. prophet." He said, um, quote, and seizing by her glossy locks the goddess Ate, in his wrath he swore that never to the starry skies again uh, in, the Olympi- in the Olympian heights he would permit the universal mischief to return. Then whirling her down, he cast her down to earth. She mingling with all the works of men caused many a pang to Jove. So basically, Jove mm-hmm. cast Ate, a goddess, yeah. for, for the devil. I, I don't know about that, but... So now, is what is what this church father saying is that is that Homer is tapping into what was understood knowledge in the biblical text, whether he knew it or not, but he was giving him further information to try to give support to what Homer was writing, who in his ignorance didn't know all the details. I think is you're that, right. Is that how I'm going to understand that? I, I, I guess that the, the, the point that when when I see this and you know your book probably a good half, maybe two thirds of it. It's sort of a whodunit. Right. It, it's more trying to decipher where did these ideas come from, what did the how did they evolve, mature, harden, and I, I find it fascinating. And um, and then you get in the later parts to your alternative hypothesis and what the impact is, you know, to the rest of the doctrines of the Bible. But when I think about the fact that how much of what we believe today has not only been influenced by some of these Greek writers. You know, we've heard so much about Western thinking and Aristotelian thinking affecting how we look at Scripture rather than a Middle Eastern view of Scripture. And then we think of how much about hell and Satan 
we have gotten from like Paradise Lost or Dante's Inferno or things like this. Right. I think there's a bigger lesson here in this, is that we have had so much of this baggage that has come into our beliefs. Uh, a lot of it we will hear from our pastors, and I don't think they do it, you know, in a in a negative light. They have locked on because it's been sort of our culture for so long. They they learned it from their pastors. Yeah, yeah that's right, or the <laughs> seminary or whatever like that. And that we really seriously need to just get back to the Bible. And there are t- and now it is okay to speculate at times as long as you tell people that's what you're doing. You have done it in times in your books. I've done it in my writing. I think we've all done it. But you know, you you up front when you say, hey, this is a possibility based upon the limited information we have in God's Word, whom we all believe is inerrant, and uh, you know, one thing we can't hang our hand on is truth. But the Bible sometimes is not as expressive in some parts. But yet, that doesn't mean somebody didn't come in and fill a vacuum and try to plug in something. A lot of times they're from secular sources. And over time, they just sort of harden into what everybody believes. Now now we, we look at what happened in the days of Moses because we all watch the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and so now Hollywood has been our new thing. We don't have the Greek philosophers as much. We have, we have that to tell us what yeah, happened. Absolutely. And so that all gets in our mind. And so yeah. this is a lesson for all of us to shut the door, turn off the – and this goes for Tom in particular. He needs to turn off his TV. And the one that's got the ball bat in it. Yeah, the one with the ball bat. When I flip it on, it sparks and uh, you need to you need to <laughs> turn that off. Fire and stuff. All right. In the video games and any other kind of influences, and yes. just open up your Bible and say, "I'm not going to be pushed or bullied around." Now, you know, you might want to read a few commentaries to get their thoughts on ideas you hadn't thought of, but really, it's you and the Lord, mm-hmm. and the Holy Spirit needs to tell you what's going on. Yes. And if the Bible is silent on something. Or if it has minimal detail, um, you may ponder the possibilities, but don't be forced into picking a path mm-hmm. because it can lead to all sorts of kind of problems, mischief. And that's that's the big lesson I get out of your book. Uh, and I just th- I think it's a really cool uh, who done it. Now um, later you said basically that Lucifer sort of became a personification of a proper name, right? Right. And there were some, who, who were the people that came along that really started promoting that? Well, um, as I said, the, the first translation into English using the word Lucifer for an English word was John Wycliffe in 1395. He wrote that in Middle English, uh, kind of strange English when you try to read it today. Yeah. But, uh, that was the actually the first time that I could find that in English that word was used. Um, and if you if you look at the uh, the the Barnhart, um, let's see if I can find it. The Barnhart etymology, the dictionary of etymology, uh, it states that the English word Lucifer was borrowed from the Latin word Lucifer, which means the morning star. Mm-hmm. So you know that 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 word Lucifer in English means nothing. Outside of Morning Star, that it was and it was borrowed from Latin, so that that kind of tells you, um, you know, that. But back to your question, that the first time it was actually personified and and used as a proper name, I believe, was with Origin, mm-hmm. um, and that would have been in around two, two to two fifty three hundred time frame. Okay, and um, 
the thing is, when when Origen wrote, he wrote in uh, Greek, and he used the word heosphoros. Okay, so here again we have another word that time when uh, the Greek word heosphoros was used, and it means morning star. Mm-hmm. But when the person who translated Origen's words into English translated them, he used the he used the English word Lucifer. <laughs> he didn't which, use he didn't say morning star, which, which really came from the Latin, right? Yeah, he if he was really translating it word for word from the Greek into English, he would have used morning star. Uh, and it was Reverend uh, Frederick Crombie who translated Origen's work. Uh, that I could find that uh. um, when, when Origen actually used Heosphoros, he translated that as Lucifer and uh, referring to the devil, giving him a proper name. Well, okay. Um, let, let me ask you something just to sort of, we, we, we talked about Revelation 12, and I want to make sure something clear for our listeners when they read your book. Um, when I remember your earlier books, you look at some earlier chapters in a sort of a historical perspective. And actually, I have adopted that to a large sense, too, particularly the seals uh, that are in there. But it's sort of my own spin on things. Um, (laughs) But um, do you go so far as to become a full-blown historicist about all the book of Revelation? Do you see any futurist elements? Uh, Some might even wonder if you're a preterist, uh, you know, because a lot of them say that everything happened in A.D. 70 or in that thereabouts. How would you explain your position as far as the book in total? Oh, well, um, I think everyone, we're all preterists to, to some degree. Uh, all that means is when you look at a prophecy in the Bible, uh, was it was it fulfilled in the past? And so we're all preterists with respect to the prophecies about Jesus coming in the Old Testament. In his first advent. Been, yeah, we've, we yeah. already know that's been fulfilled, his first advent. Yeah. So... Um, Yes, there are portions of Revelation that I would um, that I would go with sources view. We've already kind of talked about those, but definitely I would not say um, all of the all of the passages in Revelation. I I don't have a firm grip on a lot of them. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I leave that to, to some to some other smarter people than I to, to try to figure out uh, Revelation 17 and 18 things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I, I definitely believe those are. Um, are going to happen in the future, and um, I think I think the Revelation chapter 12 is sort of a a parenthesis mm-hmm. in, in the middle of some things that are going to happen in the future. Where he yeah. he obviously the writer steps back in time and says, "I'm taking you back to the birth of Christ. I'm taking you back to the first century." Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the trick is kind of figuring out when that parenthesis ends. You know yeah, I mean? yeah. Well, I I agree and. Uh, and you I, know, I have a similar inclination that 12 is almost like a legend to the map of Revelation oh, and, and yeah. a key, and mm-hmm. I have sort of my own spin to it, and uh, I hope to get that in writing pretty soon. But, That'd be uh, awesome. I have a little different view on who the lady is itself, and it sort of goes back to the book of Genesis. So okay. I'd like to talk about that in the future sometime. Uh, I know we're late here in our discussion, but can you give us a little quick... Uh, Discussion about Ezekiel 28 about the Prince of Tyre. I know this is hard to make something quick, yeah. but uh, can you give us just a little quick feel? There's some similarities to Isaiah 14 
in that it relates a passage about a human person, and then suddenly it gets talking about things like Eden and that kind of stuff. Right, right. Um, let me just say real quick about Isaiah 14. I believe my my interpretation I go into detail in the book is that the prophet was taunting the king of Babylon because um, those kings back then, the ancient the ancient kings had a dream, a desire for when they died that they would uh, experience apotheosis, which just means that they are going to uh, mm-hmm. become divine when they die. They're going to be uh, elevated to the position of a stellar god. Uh, the, the Egyptians did this. Um, and the Babylonian king had this aspiration. And, and the former king is actually, if you read the passage, are taunting him and saying, um, you know, you've been, instead of uh, what you wanted to do, you know, ascend up to the, to the heavens, and, you know, oh, look at you, uh, you morning star, you, you sh- shining sun on the dawn. You are actually going to come down to the, instead of the, the, uh, the mount of um, the, side, the, the mountains in the heavens. I, I forget exactly what it says. Mount of Assembly there. Yeah, the Mount of Assembly, Mount of Zephon. Uh, you're actually going to go down to the slopes of Sheol. So it was the total opposite of what he was hoping for. He, like the other kings, were, were laid down in um, honor. He was going to be totally dishonored, and so that was the taunt. And that's what I believe um, that that passage is referring to. So, moving on then to, to Ezekiel twenty-eight, that is a passage to the king of Tyre, and it is is basically um, in, in the same kind of. Uh, light, the prophet Ezekiel this time is is giving a song of lament to the king, to the king of Tyre um, that he was um, he was you know basically bedecked in royalty and bedecked in all kinds of jewels, um, but he um, he was full of pride. And if you read the preceding chapters of, of Ezekiel 26 and 27, where it's referring to Tyre. Uh, you can see some of the things that he that that Tyre had, and that the king was proud about uh, his trade and and all of the you know it was just the wealthiest city in mm-hmm. at that time. So basically, what when when you read the passage and really break it down, and it's referring to this cherub or this cherubim, you know you'll hear teachers say, "Well, look, this this is talking about a cherubim in the Garden of Eden." Well, that has that has to be Satan, you know. Well, the problem with that is Satan isn't a cherub. You know, according to the traditional teaching, he was an angel or an archangel. And, you know, a cherub, the cherub in the Garden of Eden was actually, um, you know, the one that was protecting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, the the cherub was actually, um, you know, a separate entity mm-hmm. from Satan, from the serpent. You know, they're, they're two different entities, the serpent and the cherub in, the, in that garden. So basically what, what Ezekiel was doing was comparing the king of Tyre to um, an unnamed being in the, in the Garden of Eden. And I believe when you look at that, you'll see that the unnamed being is actually Adam. He was comparing him to a person that was without sin, but then um, fell. And so King of Tyre was, you know, 
high and lofty, but he was going to fall as well. Now, and, uh, it talks about this person being bedecked with jewels and all this other kind of stuff. Right. You're saying that's just that part that goes to the king of Tyre and not to Adam, per se? Right, right. There's uh, there's Hebrew, Hebrew, pro, Hebrew poetic prose that um, kind of is a compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, here, he'll have one phrase that refers to the king of Tyre, and, and then the next phrase will be applied to the being in the Garden of Eden, or Adam. So um, you have another passage in, in Ezekiel chapter 31 where the prophet refers to trees in the Garden of Eden, and uh, one of the kings of the earth is compared to a tree in the Garden of Eden. So there's precedent, you know. It's it's not unprecedented that, that a prophet will compare a modern king to something in the ancient past just just to to make a point. Mm-hmm. I've always I've always read that that was because that because of this idea of these various people being on mountains uh, or the 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 spiritual rulers if you will uh you know were on mountains which is why they put astral poles up on hills and all of that stuff high places hmm. that that there was a uh there you know the reason they compared them to trees was because there was a there was a commingling if you will between uh the spirit behind the throne and the spirit that ran things and they both tended to sit on mountain tops whether it was in a, the spirit realm or the the you know not spirit realm you know the I hate to say reality because that's not right either, but it's uh, the 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 physical realm that we live in. Mm-hmm. And the reason they were the reason that the tree thing is there is because it's you know you're it's it's again sort of like looking through in the ancient mm-hmm. Israelite mind uh, to this uh, if you will spiritual geography hmm. of 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 how these two things sort of commingle. Wow, that's pretty deep. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, one, one point I want to make quick because I know I know we're going to move on, but okay. um, people will say, like say in, in verse 14, that it says, Thou art the anointed cherub. But I think you point out in your description that the older translations say something that, something like you are with the cherub. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of a... Which makes quite a big difference. It makes a huge difference. <laughs> yeah, but where, you can also translate that you were the shining guardian cherub, <laughs> which also makes it... Sorry. No. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one, the way the King James Version translates it is it's referring... The Lord is speaking to the cherub, whereas if you, if you really look at... Um, the way it should have been translated, he's speaking to another entity and saying you were with the anointed cherub or um, you were were cast out by the anointed cherub where it says, I cast you out, O anointed cherub. What it really should say is I cast you out and the anointed cherub guarded you from from re-entering. And that's because uh, there's a pronoun there at, at the beginning of verses 14 and 16 that is uh, that's in the feminine whereas the king of Tyre in, in the passage is always referred to in a masculine pronoun and so what the trans, what the modern translators do is say look this really isn't referring to, this isn't a pronoun this is actually a verb you were with 
the anointed cherub. It's not saying you are the anointed cherub. Um, and that's because all the other pronouns in the passage were masculine. So I, I get pretty deep into that in the book and kind of try to explain it. But um, honestly, it was a little over my head. Yeah. I was I was going to say it's always been it's always been my understanding that the pronouns sometimes it it can be okay that they don't perfectly match like for instance you can talk about a bunch of people uh holding on to a torah or something and torah is always feminine you know uh-huh. and it it's just it's just at some point they decided to because of the way that Hebrew works, they just decided to, you know, I won't say willy-nilly. I'm sure they had some sort of system that's now lost to us. Mm-hmm. They just, everything, everything's masculine, feminine. Like horses are feminine. Why are they feminine? Nobody knows. <laughs> War is masculine. But I'm, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting. You, you know, what's, what's interesting is uh, if you look at the, um, uh, I just flipped up here, the Septuagint version of that passage yes and it says from the day that thou was created thou wast with the cherub that's right so the Septuagint sort of supports this kind of thing yes it does. uh of course you know it doesn't even use the word eden which just really means like a paradise or delight of god it says that was in the delight of the paradise of god so there's so many different ways to look look at this but but one of the things that i find interesting someone might say well, this has to be some celestial being because these are pretty big lofty things to be saying about a mortal human being unless, you know, you're really using a lot of hyperbole. But when you get back to the beginning of the chapter, it, when it says about Son of Man, in verse 2, to the prince of Tyre, Thus saith the Lord God, because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God. I said in the seat of God in the midst of the seas. That yet thou art a man and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. Yep. So it, it's already saying that the king of Tyre always has these, these kind of visions of grandeur of himself already. Yes. And well, it, I would say that I would say that if you go back and start at the beginning at chapter 26 mm-hmm. and read up, you see progressively more and more that they start using, oh, for lack of a better term, supernatural language. Yep. Like in, in chapter 27, he says yeah. he did he did business uh, the Arabs. It's the I can't remember the name for them, but they mm-hmm. they turn out to be Arabs. Uh, they did business with you in goats and bulls and rams, which is mm-hmm. uh, most commentators take as like kinds of sacrifice. And mm-hmm. you generally don't sacrifice before human rulers. So I don't know. You know, I don't know. That. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're gonna go back that far, I'll go back between Genesis one one and one two. And when, says, the, when the gap three happened and we had other kind of oh cavemen. you want to get it I don't even I don't buy cavemen the gap and theory. dinosaurs were fighting that. what are you going to say about that yeah. Yeah. I don't buy the gap theory but I, I, well, I want I'm sorry I was going to say um, you know what's funny about this passage is this is where we get the idea that Satan was the worship leader in heaven Lucifer was right. the worship leader in heaven before yeah. he fell and we we get the idea that you know Lucifer must have had musical instruments built into his body uh, kind of like hanging off of him almost like limbs yeah um, and maybe it was like Dick Van Dyke and <laughs> Poppins where he had them all hanging yeah. on him like that maybe it's, it's, it's kind of funny because when you actually look at the Hebrew words um, tabrets and pipes where we get the idea that they were musical instruments they actually are referring to sockets and settings for jewelry that's that's the, actually the primary meaning of those Hebrew words, tof, 
in, in Nekeb, uh for tablets and, and pipes. So, um, you know, the, the whole passage is talking to list all these jewel, jewels that he was uh, decked with. It only yeah. makes sense that, that the prophet was probably going to be referring to the sockets and the settings for those jewels and not musical instruments. I'm getting a picture that the king of Tyre must have looked a lot like Liberace. <laughs> it had all like these big rings on all its fingers, you know, and bejeweled with everything, you know. Hey, I want to get in uh, here. We're in the latter part of our time here yes. to get into the real controversial stuff. Oh yeah. And to get away from the from the no-brainer stuff that we've had so far about Satan. <laughs> uh, um, you have a view you put uh, toward the end of your book <laughs> about what you think happened uh, regarding Satan and. What God's plan was for him and things like that. Can you give us a little capsule of what that is? Sure. So if if you take away these passages that we've talked about and, and say that they are not referring to how Satan was in the beginning, mm-hmm. there are 14, there are some verses, by the way, that that do give descriptions, and you build it upon the ones so. that do give descriptions. Okay. Yeah, I think there are. Um, if if we take away Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Um, and say, you know, what does the Bible really say about Satan's beginnings? We find that um, he was described in John's Gospel, uh, John 8:44, as uh, a murderer from the beginning. And also in First John, he's re- he's described as um, Sinning, always sinning from the beginning. John also describes him as uh, he, he was a liar. He was he's the father of lies, liar from the beginning. So these these are the concrete, without a doubt, passages that tell us something about what how Satan was at the beginning. So my point of contention is okay. What was what did the author mean by the beginning? Did he mean the beginning of the beginning, or did he mean mm-hmm. the beginning of Satan's or the serpent's um, described activities yeah, in right. Genesis 3? Right. Um, I take them to mean the beginning of the beginning because, you know, the same author of the, the Gospel of John, the very first verse says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He defines what the beginning means to him in those two verses, and that was the beginning of creation. All things were made by him, etc., etc. So when, when Jesus later says, you are of your father the devil, and the less of your father you will do, he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. You speak of the lie, speak of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So, um, basically, we have to understand that the beginning was uh, how Satan was created from the beginning as a murderer, a liar, and as a sinner. So, to kind of cut to the chase, what I propose in the book is that Satan did not fall. Lucifer did not fall. He is not a fallen angel. That God created him as he was. From the beginning, a murderer and a sinner. So, hmm. are you ready to beat me up now? <laughs> right. Well, uh, you know, the first thing I thought of when I read this was that it, and I'm sure you wouldn't accept this label, but it just reminded me of, of more of a Calvinism predestination kind of role for Satan. In other words, 
uh, he, he was chose as sort of this, you know, unfit vessel or whatever reason um, for the wrath of God, and that that was foisted upon him, and he just did his role as God intended him to do, and then of course he'll be punished for eternity in the lake of fire. And one of my, my my thoughts was, would Satan have justification to believe he was unjustly being sent to the lake of fire if he he was only doing what God had created him to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of humans could say that too. Um, you know, if they never heard the truth of the gospel, they could say, you know, I was created without a chance. Uh, you know, you you created me this way, and, and yeah, that's that's kind of what Calvinism right. teaches, and that's why I am uh, wholeheartedly against Calvinism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do not, definitely, do not believe in uh, that. Um, in other words, that people were created just for damnation. Right, do not believe that. But do you um, believe that Satan was? I believe that God, in His sovereignty, wanted to have. Um, someone, uh, an entity who would test the loyalty of his people, and I don't just come up with that on, you know, on my own. I go through the scriptures and try to find every single place almost where Satan is referred to in the Bible. When you look at all of those places, where we're talking about Job, the testing of Jesus, um, the testing of um, David, uh, the, you know, the testing of the disciples. Every single time he's mentioned, he's shown as a tester or an adversary. Right. This is why he was created. Uh, even the, you know the main one would be the Book of Job, where he comes to God and says, "Look, I want to test the loyalty of your servant Job," and that's what he does. God gave him permission. God allowed him to do that. He did it with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He tested them, and they failed the test. So all through Scripture, we have this. Uh, this is Satan's. Modus operandi. This is this is what he does. Now, in the timeline, he be, he became even more evil and more filled with rage when he realized that he had been used, um, you know, and he had been um, kicked out of the throne room of God, no longer able to access it. Uh, so that was the time when he became full of rage and wrath. It's kind of what we talked about in Revelation chapter twelve. So so, so why why would he be kicked out if he was just doing what God had created him to do? Well, because the passage, Revelation 12, says that there was no longer room for him there in, in heaven. And that's because Jesus had taken his position on the right, at the right hand of God. There was no, there was no um, place for him to accuse the believers anymore because Jesus had, kind of like you were saying, he, Jesus uh, was the public defender, so to speak, and the accuser was was kicked out. Well, it would seem then that he could actually uh, sort of go, go into retirement <laughs> and basically say, boy, you did a good job. Your role is fulfilled, you know, just like the ancient prophets. Yes. Um, why does he re- give a ignominious end then? I believe that he, he created Satan to be predisposed to do evil. So will he be sent to the lake of the fire of the things he did before Jesus kicked him out or only for the things he did after Jesus kicked him out? Well, he will be sent to the lake of fire because that is uh, what God in his sovereignty has, has decided to do with him. Um, you know, I don't, I don't question God 
but he's certainly deserving of, of going to the lake of fire. Um, Tom, what do you think? What are your thoughts on this? I've always, I mean, for me, it's, it's, I've never seen the, the necessary uh, cause and effect relationship from the fact that God predestinates something and then it has to happen. Right, just because he knows the other saying that saying that in another way is just because he knows something's going to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen, and there's there's biblical precedent for that, or and, that he made it happen. Yeah, or that he made it happen. That it made it happen. Even just even he knows even more happen. forceful. Yeah. yeah. First Samuel twenty three records a place where David says, you know, he doesn't trust the men of Kila, and he says, will they will they sur- basically will they surrender me to to Saul? And they, he yeah. says, yes. And uh, surrender me into the hand of Saul if he comes. And then he says, yes. So then he leaves, and then Saul shows up and says, oh, well, he's not here, and goes home. Mm-hmm. Saul came to Kyla, David, you know, and, and, you know, the people didn't surrender him. So, you know, uh, it's it's wrapped up in my idea that God knows all the events that will take place, including the one, including the decisions that we don't make. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because we were talking about Genesis. Both Genesis and Revelation came up in this discussion, and yeah. the fact that the like the seas and and all of this stuff uh, is very typical of from what I've read on the ancient mindset is that they saw God not only as sovereign but as in reigning in chaos. You know, and the reason mm-hmm. there are no seas in Revelation twenty one twenty two, there's no more sea, was because God was reigning in chaos. Uh, anyway, mm-hmm. that's a little far afield from the predestination yeah. thing. Yeah. But the point is, is that the point uh, the point is, is that if he's reigning in chaos in, in the ancient mindset, uh, he you know he he knows all the things that are going to happen as well as all the things that aren't going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I so. I, I guess um, t- to me it's very straightforward that God uses Satan, even Satan, to accomplish. His will on earth. He certainly did in Job. Mm-hmm. Yes. Satan didn't understand that's what he was doing. Satan yeah. didn't realize he was being hijinked. He just thought, you know, God set him up on one and, you know, he, he did it. And uh, he thought the whole purpose was to show the, that uh, Job would fold, where it appears to me God's original plan was to liberate uh, Job from his fears that if he lost everything, that everything was over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his paranoia about losing everything, and God showed him that life was still there, and if he did, and then he could restore it to him. Uh, mm-hmm. And I see that over and over again. I mean, uh, yes. God used Pharaoh, and in fact hardened his heart. And some people say, well, that's not very hard in his heart. Well, I sort of see that as a form of final judgment, um, where, where God God retains the sovereignty over our length of days before he calls an end to them. Uh, and he can choose to take our life. The bus could hit us on the street corner, and that's the end of your 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 time, you know, to reconcile to him. Or he can harden your heart, and you can basically be a dead man standing, like uh, like uh, Pharaoh was. And so I know God does those kind of things with His sovereignty, and even the works of Satan. And obviously, the Scripture says all things work together for good, you know, for those who love Him. And that even includes the wiles of the devil and his minions. But um, I'm not quite sure I can get my arms around the fact that God would condemn Satan to a lake of fire yeah. over a non-willful 
act against him. In other words, for just doing his job. And, and I know those who are, who are more of a predestination kind of thing wouldn't have a problem with that because they don't see a problem with people uh, being created for that purpose. But uh, I've never quite, you know, quite seen in that direction. I don't think it's a requirement to get, you know, a lot of the benefits out of your book. What what I sense, what 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 I think you've done or interpreted to support your thesis here is that the passages that talked about a fall, uh, a fall from high standing, I, you have shown some doubt on the original interpretation of what they were, and you give your reasons why and the evidence. And after you've done that, the next step is to say, well, was there a fall even to begin with? And that's what I'm understanding you're saying as, as a background. If you dismiss these passages, does it dismiss the, the idea of a fall at all? And, and I guess one other thing that probably we should tie up a loose end on that, I mean, make any other comments you want here, uh, David, but there's an incident, and you refer to this in your book, you, you, you don't try to avoid uh, issues, uh, was the part where the dragon sweeps down a third of the stars down to earth. Right. A lot of times people would think, okay, that's associated with the fall of Satan when the third of angels who aligned with him are, are, are thrown, you know, thrown to earth. Can you give a comment on what you think, an alternative of that, and anything else you want to add to undergird your, your position on this? Yeah, uh, on that particular passage in Revelation 12, I believe that it could have been, if we look at the context of the first century again, uh, Satan was marshalling one-third of his spiritual army to attack the male child as soon as he was born. Um, because he noticed, he knew that this was something momentous that was happening. He he could know that by some of the prophecies that were being given. The angel Gabriel speaking to Mary, mm-hmm. um, the, the prophecies that you know were talking about being fulfilled with John the Baptist, and then you know Jesus was going to follow him. So he knew that something was was momentous was happening, and he <clears throat> brought one third of his uh, spiritual kingdom down onto the earth to to combat it, and uh, that came about with the um, census and then the uh, command by Herod to kill the male children uh, mm-hmm. that were two years and under. Hmm. Okay, all right. So you see them basically as forces of Satan that were brought down at that particular point in time. To help get rid of that male child. Right, right. Okay. Got to, trying to keep it in the, the context that, that the rest of the passage is in, which would be the first century and right when he was actually born to the woman. Okay, all right. Um, well, I, I, I think we've covered the main points. I don't want to give away everything because I want people to get your book. Yeah. But I think we've covered the main stuff. They've got a feel for uh, where things go. You go into a lot more exhaustive detail. The book is really not huge. It's 187 no. pages. It's just heavy-duty stuff in those 187 pages. Um, in summary, how would you how, how, how would you think the findings in your book should change our faith and our understanding of God or how we should act and live? Well, considering how prevalent the myth of Lucifer is in not just Christendom but in in, in the secular world, um, I think it is important to have the correct view and, and, a, and a good biblical understanding of of the enemy, you know, and his his origins. Um, we have not only Christians, but we have you know the Luciferians. We always talk about. 
Luciferians and mm-hmm. and their plan for um, you know of evil with um, you know the, the Masonic mm-hmm. uh, Albert Pike and Manly Hall P Hall and then we had um, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky um, you know her her Luciferian leanings um, that have had a major influence on on where we are today you know mm-hmm. what if what if the foundation that all of that was built upon is not correct. What if it never should have been um, perpetrated throughout the centuries? That there really is no fallen angel named Lucifer. It didn't really happen. Um, so I think. And again, I want to make sure clear for our listeners if they join us late. You're not saying there's not a Satan, or that there's no. an adversary or one who's the enemy of God that will be judged. You're just saying the storyline. That we associate with Lucifer, um, that has you know been in literature and everything else, and embellished and things like that. That's what you're disputing is that aspect of it. Right. The, the ancient historical view of Lucifer that led to the state that he's in right now. That's right. Okay. That's right. I think you know we need we can we can have a better witness. We can have a better understanding. And I just I just like understanding the scripture as as it should be understood. Um, so we can, you know, give a faithful account of it, right? And um, so that—that's kind of how how my book would change the faith and, and the way I live and, and how we understand, you know, the ancient past and, and perhaps even the future. You know, perhaps even the, the lie of Lucifer, the myth of Lucifer, is going to be used somehow as a, hmm. as a future deception. Mm-hmm. Because you have the Luciferians and the Light Bearer and all that good stuff, um, and they look for the occult world looks for his return. Right, he's the great, the great hero, the great shining horse, the friend of humanity, according to them, the Light Bringer <laughs> to us. And so they have really lopped onto that uh, that that whole idea and created their own mythology around it. Right, and we could disarm them of that. Well, I just want to reiterate what what I take out of a book like this is that. Um, when you just start to think about how much our our culture, our external secular culture, has influenced what we think to know about God, about his cosmos, his kingdom, how things work, you, you tend to shudder. And it is not an indictment against the Bible. The, the Bible is God's perfect word. There's no issue with that. Um, it's just that um, when you get people involved in all of their shortcomings and things like that, that's why I, you know, I don't want people to, to take a short short circuit away from their direct involvement with God's Word and uh, the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. And there will still be things that you won't understand. And that's okay. Yes. Paul said he saw through a mirror darkly. The Lord will still get us to the other side even if we have unresolved issues. There are also things that the Bible is silent on, as we've talked earlier. Uh, or they only give a hint, a glimpse. And we need to stand fast on the glimpse. And if you're the kind of person, like most of our Futurians are, that will uh, your mind will go beyond to say, well, you know, how do I get my arms around this in a more tangible way? Consider options. But just don't be confined by some kind of, uh, you know, speculation that somebody else made long ago. Right. Uh, go back and do your own research. And I want to encourage all our listeners to get your book so they can begin looking at this themselves. And how can they get a hold of your book? Well, the website is uh, deconstructinglucifer.com. 
or they can get it on Amazon.com. It's uh, available on Kindle. It's available on PDF and in paperback. Okay. So, what what about like uh, like imprints on the right hand or forehead? Can they get it that way, or any kind of brain uh, installation or anything like that? Ooh, I don't know if I want to go there. Alpha waves. <laughs> uh, so, but any other form of media? You have a big Maya port in your head where you put a. Yeah, plug Jack. in the side yep. if you just download Deconstructing Lucifer. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, Tom, you got any comments? Uh, we're getting things wound up here. Um, I'm gonna hang on to my supernatural position. Okay. But I appreciate I appreciate that's reading cool. the book. Yeah. It was that's, good. That's Thank cool. You. Yeah. I tell you what, I really enjoy hanging out with guys, Tom, like you and and Dave, mm-hmm. who really stretch me because, um, you know, I, I'm still the remedial. Yeah, and I, I try to look at this kind you of keep, stuff. You keep, like, showering compliments on it, and then people talk to me for five minutes, and they're like, okay, well, give me the real Tom That's why they don't Nobody talk to me anymore. This, nobody can be this dumb and still get, <laughs> you know. Hey, Dave, we wish the very best for you. Uh, sorry it's been so long. Uh, try to knock out a book a year so we can see you more often, okay? Oh, okay. And you All know right. what? You can even come on if you don't have a book, okay? Just tell oh, us yeah, if you'd like to. to come shoot the breeze, and uh, it would be better than... Most of the drivel we have to talk about every week. Oh, I um, love listening to you guys. I'd love to come on and, you know, talk about something other than what I've written, that's for sure. Well, I bet you, you will have a controversial view, whatever it is. <laughs> I bet you it will not just be mainstream uh, bl- blabber yeah. uh, with you. It, Dave, you've had a real role in my life and opened my eyes to so many things, including the state of the world and what's going on. And I've mentioned your name alongside Peter Goodgames in helping me understand what's going on in the Middle East, in our own country, 911, and this kind of stuff. And I just want to thank you again publicly for, for being a big help to me mm-hmm. and opening my eyes. And I have to, when I, when I get frustrated with people, I have to remind myself that it took a David Lowe and Peter Goodgame, a few others, to finally get me to come around. <laughs> I appreciate that. Praise God that, uh, that I was able to, uh, to help in that way. Well, it's going to get much more confusing for all of us, and we need to keep studying. We need to be studious. We need to cut slack with each other. Uh, we see through a mirror darkly. Keep studying each other's work, and uh, just wait for the Lord one day to show us all things. And thank you again so much, David, for coming on Future Quake. You're welcome. Thank you. We're back at the Future Quake show with Dr. Future. And Tom, it was an interesting interview. Bionic. Thanks, Tom. Yep. Uh, we understand we went late. We're not going to keep you long. You've got mm-hmm. a long day, but you got any kind of last words you want to say about? Uh, um, I mean, like, I, well, I just pretty much said what I. I think I. I think I made it clear. I, I appreciate his research, but I'm going to stick with my supernatural yeah. view. I, yeah. I. I think the. I think. I mean, the way that I sort of do things, it's like the word study is the last, and context is the thing that sort of puts it all together. Mm-hmm. And the question is. The question is is then whether the poetical aspects of the King of Tyre are uh, are allegorical or is he really describing an actual thing? And, yeah. and based on my understanding of the ancient Near Eastern way that they sort of looked at the heavenlies, I would say he's talking about an actual thing. Okay. All right. So well, we'll let our listeners decide. Uh, be sure and get his book. We'll have a link to it at futurequake.com. Uh, and I'd like to tell Merv to come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Futurequake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information.
email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, I just want to mention really quick, I want to thank uh, Christopher in Pennsylvania for a donation that you made. Really appreciate that, brother. I uh, also want to thank um, uh, Bonnie as well. And we've got a number of the people who made some recent donations or some book purchases of Pandemonium and uh, Frightening. And we will list you all next week, but we really do have to go. Um, no other word? That's all I got. Okay. Keep studying the scriptures, finding your own solution, pray, seek the, seek the Lord's guidance. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.